It's good to worship with you this morning. A, a special thank you to Barb Filiatro and just the team and the army that it takes to, to serve our children and our great desires that our children, too, would be faithful followers of Christ. I have a stool up here with me. I'm having uh, some back issues. We had some, some people over last night, and it seems that Al Jacobson's much stronger than he looks. So, uh, as I said, it, it's good to worship with you. And as we continue our series in the letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians, we consider again this idea of freedom, freedom in Christmas. The birth of a Savior has implications. Namely, the implications of a life that the Savior would lead, the implication of a death he would suffer, and the resurrection conquering that death. Christmas is a celebration of Jesus, a celebration that Jesus was born to die, a celebration that Jesus was born to redeem. A celebration that Jesus was born to rescue and bring true freedom to his people. Which brings us to our passage here this morning. If you have a copy of the scriptures, I'll ask that you turn to Galatians 4. We'll be in verses 21 through 31. And many argue that this is one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament to comprehend and to apply and I like to simplify it by pointing us to the fact that this passage and really the celebration of Christmas as a whole, it forces us to consider that there are only two kinds of people in this world. A great contrast is made between these two people in our passage and everyone, everyone in this room is on one side or the other, according to Paul. So as we will see, there's a common sequence of two in our passage. There are two mothers, two sons. There are two covenants, two cities, and two families. Paul has been arguing for a couple of chapters now about the reality and the implication of being a child of Abraham, a son, an heir through faith in Jesus Christ. And in our passage last week, Paul made a personal appeal to his friends. And here this morning we see an appeal to Old Testament realities and promises. And the idea that I want us to really hone in on, to consider, to cling to this morning is that Jesus is enough because Sarah is our mother. If we are the offspring of Abraham, it makes sense that Sarah would be our spiritual mother, not necessarily because of the woman that she was, but rather the truth that she represents, as we'll see in our passage. As I've studied this this week, I've been helped by the structuring that one person put out that was really helpful. The passage, it breaks down in three ways. There's a historical reality, an allegorical interpretation, and a practical application. Let's start with the first. 
the historical reality. Uh, Read with me, please, verses 21 through 23. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, we're at that point in the letter where we've heard all this before, specifically verse 21. Again, it's revealed that these Galatian believers wanted to put themselves back under the law. They don't think Jesus is enough. And perhaps it's 2021, right? And we've gone through Galatians for a few weeks now, like a few months. And it's easy for you and I to look at the law and say, really? You want to go back? That's silly. You want to go back to the law? Back under the civil and ceremonial commands of the Old Testament? Who would want that? But if you and I think that, we're failing to see Paul's point. These believers, they want to go back, really, to having to earn God's pleasure. They want to earn their salvation. They want to earn God's continued pleasure of them in the Christian life. It's not just a matter of the law. It's this idea of, i gotta, I got to work my way. They'll happily confess that Jesus died to save them. But as we read in chapter 3, they think foolishly, incorrectly, unbiblically, they think they will be perfected, completed, and gain more favor from God by works of the flesh. Now, the Old Testament ceremonial and civil laws, that might not be your thing. That might not be a temptation for you. That doesn't draw you. You're not considering putting yourself under it. However, there are other ways that we put ourselves back under a law or our human performance for God's pleasure. Here's how one pastor put it. Even without realizing it, we can reduce faith in Jesus to a list of rules or traditions. So, whether it's attending church, going to meetings, keeping traditions, reading your Bible, serving, evangelism, these are all good things. But do we do these things because Jesus is enough and we love him? Or do we do them because we want to put ourselves under a law that would earn his favor? So Paul, he points to a historical reality in our text in verse 22 and 23 that recollects on the historical narrative of Abraham and his relationships with two women, Hagar and Sarah. If you're unfamiliar with the story or it's been a while, It is documented in Genesis 12 through 21. And here's the summary for you. God chooses Abraham. God comes to Abraham and makes amazing promises to him and his family. God's covenant, God's promise was that Abraham would be given a son, which in turn would become a nation. And that nation would inherit the world. 
And Abraham's family would know blessing, and Abraham's family would bless the entire world. Well, that sounds great. But we see time and time again that Abraham, the father of faith, well, he wasn't much different than you and I. Our faith is often mixed with a healthy dose of fear and doubt. Specifically, in Genesis 16, Abraham and Sarah are in the midst of doubt. They had a marriage that was a little rocky at times. Maybe not unlike some of us. And God had made a covenant, a promise with them. But you know what? It had been 10 years. God, you're going to give me a son and We're going to have a nation and a land and blessing, but it's been 10 years and I have no son and I have no nation and I have no land and I'm doubting. And as Paul alludes to in our passage in verse 23 here, Abraham and Sarah, they made a very fleshly decision. Sarah offers her servant Hagar to Abraham to sleep with her. And gain a son that way. Abraham, in his foolishness and his unbelief to God's promises, agrees. Hagar brings forth a son named Ishmael. However, despite their unbelief, despite their fear and their doubt, God still fulfills his original promise to Abraham and Sarah. In Genesis 21, Genesis 21, 25 years after the fact, Isaac is born. 25 years of praying and waiting on God to act. I think many times we ourselves, maybe it hasn't been 25 years, maybe it's been 24 hours, and we're just waiting, God, act, work. Sometimes he allows us to wait and pray for 25 years. But the son of promise was born, Isaac. So the historical situation is this. There's two sons and two mothers. One son was born of human manufacturing and human scheming. Well, the other son was born of divine intervention and promise. And I can say that because Sarah was 90 years old. You want to talk about a supernatural divine intervention? Yeah, Isaac is the son of promise and miracles, certainly. One mother was a servant or a slave. And the other was a free woman and Abraham's true wife. But we don't just see the historical situation. Next in our passage, Paul shows us the allegorical interpretation. Read with me, please, verse 24 and 25. Now, this, this historical reality, this historical account of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, now this, he says in verse 24, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. 
As one person defined it, an allegory is a story with specific people, places, and events that stand for deep spiritual truths. Think of the classic writing of John Bunyan called Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read it, I would encourage you to find a good updated translation of it and read it with a friend or your family. Kids, it's not too late to ask your parents for Christmas gifts, so I want you to ask your parents for the book called Dangerous Journey. Kids, you writing that down? Dangerous Journey. That's what you want for Christmas. And it's a story, this dangerous journey, Pilgrim's Progress. It's a story of a man depicting a man named Christian who's on a journey. He's leaving the city of destruction and he's going to the celestial city. It's an allegory. It's a story that points to something deeper. Namely, the reality of being a faithful follower of Christ. So Paul, here in our passage, he takes the literal historical account of Abraham, this dude with Hagar and Sarah, of Genesis 12 through 21. And he says that it points to something deeper. Specifically, these two mothers, these two sons, they point to two covenants, they point to two cities, they point to two families. So as we read in these verses, I want to first consider the mother Hagar. Paul argues that Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, the present Jerusalem, and that her and her children are slaves. Well, what, what does that mean? It's helpful for, us, helpful for us at this time to recognize that this is what Paul says Hagar represents. It's not necessarily who she is, it's what she represents, Paul is saying. So we look at Hagar, and I want to break this down. Why does Hagar represent Mount Sinai in Arabia? Well, the promise, the covenant made through Moses to the people of Israel is often called the Old Covenant. Or some people will call it the republishing of a covenant of works. And that was done on Mount Sinai, which is located in the area of Arabia. It was on this mountain that the Ten Words, or as we traditionally call it, the Ten Commandments were given. They were spoken, decreed, and given to Moses and the nation of Israel. It was on this mountain that stipulations were given to accomplish, and we've talked about this in recent weeks. The law was given, stipulations were given, so that the three functions of the law would be put in place. We said this in Galatians 3. The, the first function was that the law would be a mirror. You would read the stipulations and the commands and you'd see, oh man, I, I need Christ, I need a Savior. Well, the second function of these words or these commands that we call the Ten Commandments was that it would restrain us. We've talked in prior weeks how God gives us His law to restrain us from going beyond the moral limit of God's standard. And third, the law was given so that it would be a guide, a guide to faithful followers who love God's moral law because they love God and they love His character. Paul makes it clear that this old covenant, it was the mother of slavery. Recollect and read with me again Galatians 3.23. I'll put it on the screen here. 
Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. We were imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law, Hagar, and everything she represents, building ourselves up by our human performance, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Paul goes on further. He doesn't just say that the mountain represents the slavery of the law, but he says it even represents present-day Jerusalem. Present-day Jerusalem in his day likely refers to chapter 2. In chapter 2, it was these guys coming from Jerusalem to spy on Titus's freedom. Or it was the present-day Jerusalem of uh, the men from James, it says in Galatians 2, that came from James to put stipulations on these Galatians. You see, the religious elites lived in Jerusalem, and they were espousing the need of the law. They remained the hub of Jewish culture and belief. Hagar. Hagar was the mother who represented children of slavery, an old covenant of law, in a present-day city, a present-day family that says Jesus is not enough. That's what Hagar represents. Paul says there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who have the allegorical mother of Hagar and everything she stands for. And there are those who believe there is truly freedom in Christmas. That's what it means to be a child of Hagar. A child of Hagar would champion human effort and say, you need the law, freedom in Christmas, freedom in Christ. No, that's not enough. He's not enough. But Sarah does believe those things. And that's who I want to focus on next. Yes, there's the mother Hagar, but there's also mother Sarah. Our mother. Read with me in verse 26 and 27. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Oddly enough, oddly enough, in our passage, Sarah is never mentioned by name. She's referred to as the free woman in verse 22 and 23. She is called the Jerusalem above in verse 26 and 27. And that what we read there, that quotation, was a quotation of Isaiah 54, verse 1. And Paul quotes that to support, support the fact that Sarah is the mother of promise. Now, Isaiah is a really long book, and the prophet has a dual message. You could flip to any chapter in Isaiah, and he's preaching one of two things. The dual message of Isaiah is this. Judgment is coming because of your sin. Because of your lack of faithfulness to the old covenant. But then out of the other side of his mouth, he's saying, yes, judgment's coming because of your lack of faithfulness, but restoration, hope, forgiveness, and a new covenant will come one day. 
And at times, Isaiah's proclamation seems bleak. But the section that Paul quotes is in the middle of Isaiah communicating God's future restoration of the people of God in the entire world. Like Sarah, Israel has been barren. But Israel will one day break into song because as God says to Abraham in Genesis 15, look to the heaven. Try to number those stars. So shall your offspring be. Israel will be restored. And the offspring of Abraham will spread throughout the entire world. That's the promise. So Sarah is the mother of promise, first with Isaac and then with us. She is the mother of restoration. Sarah is the mother of the offspring of Abraham. She is the mother of those who have faith. She is the mother of the new covenant in Christ. She is the mother of heaven. Isaiah would continue in that chapter and say this in verse 10. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Paul says Sarah represents the covenant of peace. So there are two mothers. One who represents slavery and one who represents freedom. One who represents a covenant of law and works and the other a covenant of peace and forgiveness. So we've seen the historical situation, the allegorical interpretation of Hagar and Sarah and what they represent. But finally, I want us to consider the practical application. Have you ever heard someone say theology isn't practical? The remark essentially says, well, theology, it's, it's just theory, but it lacks the day-to-day stuff that I need for Monday. Give me something I can actually use in everyday life. And as we see here in our passage, it isn't that theology doesn't have practical application to our life. It does. But we often fail just to see how practical it is. Or maybe more often, a teacher fails just to show how it applies to our life. But Paul, Paul is a faithful teacher. And in this last section, he demonstrates how the reality of Hagar and Sarah, two women, two mothers, two sons that they had, Paul demonstrates how that actually has great implication, great practicality to our life this week. So the first implication I want us to consider is verse 28. And it's the implication of your family. Okay, Hagar, Sarah, I get the historical reality of it in Genesis. I've read that before. I understand Paul saying they represent two covenants, but so what? But Paul says, I I want you to consider your family. Look at verse 28. Paul says, now you, you brothers, like Isaac, are children, children of promise. Paul addresses the sons, the heirs, the offspring of Abraham, as we've said in past weeks, men and women as brothers, as children of the same family, as the people of promise. He comes to them. 
And we've said this a couple times in our series so far. The biblical reality and the truth of the gospel is that it unites us together in Christ. We are equal. At the ground of, well, how do I say it? I think I say something like at the ground of the cross, the, the foot is, no, at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. There's an equality amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. But Paul seems to be implying something more than that here in our text. Something else. One commentator writing on this verse says this. Unlike Ishmael, who was born to Abraham in the normal way, according to the flesh, but like Isaac, who was born through divine intervention, the Galatian believers, these Gentile Galatians, are the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham to give him numerous descendants, to bless the nations through him, and to give his descendants, ultimately, the world. So it is with us, Lakewood. So it is with us. God has divinely intervened in your life. And as Jesus puts it, you've been born again of the Spirit. We are part of the true offspring, Jesus. We are connected to the promises of Sarah and Abraham. The promises that were passed down to Isaac and to Jacob that began with Adam and with Eve. And they went through the lineage of the kingship of David. We have not been saved. If you are a faithful follower, you have not been saved merely as an individual. We are part of the body of Christ. Something so much bigger than ourselves. Something that has preceded us, not just by a generation or two, but literally since the beginning of the foundation of the world. We're a part of something bigger. We are part of the body of Christ and the restoration of the world through His gospel. That's our family. We, like the Galatian believers, we have been born through divine intervention, through the grace of God. And we would do well to remember this morning that we've been born of the Spirit. We've believed. We've trusted. And we are clinging to the good news of Jesus. That the God-man, Jesus, lived a perfect life on our behalf. And he died a sacrificial death to die in the place of our sins. And he rose again the third day, conquering death, conquering sin for people like us. We would do well to remember the family that we're a part of. That our life, whether, whether we like it or not, and let's be honest, sometimes we don't, our life is interconnected with one another. There is no solo Christian life. So, as you sacrifice your time to care for others in our family here, as you sacrifice your money to extend gospel proclamation, not just in our community, but to the ends of the earth, and as you sacrifice your preferences to love one another, to care for one another when they look differently than you, it puts Christ on display. It's a reminder that we are a part of something much bigger than ourselves. Lakewood is small peanuts compared to the redemptive history of God working in this world. And he gives you and I the pleasure, the privilege 
to be a part of it. May God help us keep this big vision of why God has us here. We are part of a family in Christ. That's a great implication of Hagar and Sarah, that we would remember who we are, what our identity is in Jesus. But the second implication, well, it's, it's uh, maybe not as warm and bubbly. Not just the implication of your family, the implication of your persecution. Read verse 29. But just as at that time, just so you know, we know Paul believes in a literal Sarah and Hagar. He believes in a literal Genesis because he's not just saying it's some allegory out there. He's saying in verse 29, at that time when Hagar and Sarah were around, when Ishmael and Isaac were around, verse 29, at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So also it is now. Aside from the Middle Eastern conflict that still arises to this day, and if you're not familiar, this is what the conflict is. The conflict is based on the distinction of who is Abraham's son? What's the relationship between Ishmael and Isaac? That's the battle. But not just in the Middle East. What about for us as faithful followers of Christ? Those who are born of the flesh, those who do not have spiritual eyes, those who champion the law, who elevate human effort and think that Jesus is not enough. They will always be in conflict with the children of promise. It's a reminder to these Galatian believers that the effort of these false teachers, these Judaizers, these legalists, what they're doing in trying to rip them apart from Jesus and putting them under the law, Paul's saying, listen, it's a form of persecution. They're seeking to do you harm. And the persecution of the children of promise, it goes way further back than anything we might experience in this lifetime, what Paul was talking about in his day, but it actually goes back to the beginning of Scripture, to the Garden of Eden. After the sin of Adam and Eve, God cursed them, but he also cursed that serpent, Satan. And this is what he said. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And so it was with Cain and Abel, and so it was with Israel and the surrounding nations. So it was with the Gentile believers and those Judaizers and legalists persecuting them. And so it is in our day. A cosmic battle between two kinds of people. The people of God, the children of promise, are not secured the ease of a life unmarked by suffering. Don't forget, Paul says, faithful followers of Christ will be persecuted as they cling to the promises of God. And many of you may bear the marks of suffering, opposition, and persecution. 
And one of the reasons Paul communicates this, one of the reasons he says, hey, one of the, an implication of Hagar and Sarah, you need to be aware that there's a cosmic battle of good and evil. Everything Hagar represents, everything Sarah represents, they're at odds with one another. And he says that to those believers, and, and brothers and sisters, he would say that to us now so that we're not surprised when we find ourselves in conflict. I don't know why it is, and I'm, maybe I doubt it's just me, but it seems like whenever I meet any opposition or any difficulty, any persecution, any trial, I'm surprised. What's going on? Why is this happening? In persecution, it doesn't just happen outside the church, but can we be honest for a moment and say sometimes it happens in the church? Sometimes... We represent Hagar. Maybe we give a word of criticism, a word of judgment, a look of disapproval. What we're doing in that moment, yeah, maybe it's not physical and life and death, but it is a form of persecution when you and I would speak and look down on one another. In that moment, and I'm guilty of it, I've done it. In that moment, when I say or think or do and represent Hagar and come down with a lack of grace to someone, I'm persecuting them. So whether it's a persecution that happens in the body by us at times, or it's a literal, physical persecution that happens in our communities and I know many of you are fearful of a, a day and age that we live in where we may for, face persecution in our country. Paul comes and he says, don't be surprised. It is an implication. There is a battle going on. And parents, you would do well to prepare your children for that. You know that this world is marked by brokenness and sin. And there is, as Paul says, not just flesh, but spiritualities and powers and things going on. So we would do well to remember that an implication of being a child of promise is we might be met with persecution. Well, the third implication we see is not just your family, not just your persecution, but your yoke, your yoke. Read with me, please, starting in verse 30. But what? What does the scripture say? Good question, by the way. I hope that's your question every single time you're trying to answer something. What does the scripture say? All right, Paul, tell us. Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers... We are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. I'm going to steal in the chapter 5 here. Look at verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The implication that we have to consider as we look at Hagar and Sarah is what yoke will we choose? 
I had to look this up just because I wanted to be sure. I am a little bit city, so I need to know for sure what a yoke is. And maybe some of you don't know, uh, but I had to be reminded. A yoke is a wooden cross piece that's fastened over the necks of two animals. And it's attached to a plow or to a cart and they'll work a field or carry something heavy. Paul comes here and he says, the yoke, cast it out. Cast out what Hagar represents. Cast out being a child of slavery. Cast out obedience to the old covenant to make you right with God. Cast out your reliance on human effort. Cast out that former life of pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and leaning on your performance to please God. Cast out the idea that Jesus isn't enough. And as Paul says, so it is true with us, brothers and sisters at Lakewood. Hagar is not our mother. We are not her children. We're the children of what Sarah represents. The promises of God, the new Jerusalem, freedom, forgiveness, and the finished work of Jesus. Because Jesus is enough. Jesus has set us free. We don't have to go back to performing perfectly. Jesus has performed perfectly on our behalf. Truly, truly, there is freedom in Christmas. Truly, Jesus is enough because Sarah is our mother. And truly, blessing comes from casting out our self-sufficiency and taking upon the yoke of Jesus. Here's a, a helpful word I read recently about the yoke of Jesus. Dane Orland, gentle and lonely. Jesus, talking about his yoke, Jesus is using a kind of irony, saying that the yoke laid on his disciples, it's a non-yoke. For it is a yoke of kindness. Who? Who could resist this? It's like telling a drowning man that he must put on the burden of a life preserver, only to hear him shout back, no, no way, not me. This is hard enough drowning here in these stormy waters. The last thing I need is the added, the added burden of a life preserver around my body. And that's what we are all like, confessing Christ with our lips, but generally avoiding deep fellowship with him out of a muted understanding of his heart. His yoke is kind and his burden is light. That is, his yoke is a non-yoke and his burden is a non-burden. What helium does to a balloon, Jesus' yoke does to his followers. We are buoyed along in life by his endless gentleness and his supremely accessible lowliness. He doesn't simply meet us at our place of need. He lives in our place of need. And he never tires of sweeping us into his tender embrace. It is his very heart. That is the yoke of Jesus. I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, choose the yoke of Jesus. Cast off 
the yoke of slavery. Follow him in joyful obedience. If you are here visiting this morning, or you're considering Christianity, or you have been a faithful follower for years, who is your mother? Who is your brother? Which covenant will you choose? Which city do you belong? Will you desire slavery or freedom? Will you cling to Christ? He is, he is enough. Will you pray with me? Father, would you meet us? Would you be near to us? Would you enable us to cast off the old? To cast off what Hagar represents? To cast off the yoke of slavery? God, would you change us by your spirit to embrace Sarah and everything she represents? She represents peace and life and forgiveness. A new covenant with a new mediator, Jesus. Lord, as we seek to live as children of Sarah this week, would you help us to be keenly aware of the family you've placed us in here at Lakewood? Would you prepare our hearts for suffering and persecution? And Lord, would we choose each and every day the non-yoke, the lifting and warm embrace of a relationship with Christ? Lord, would we be different and would it impact those around us this week? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.